Somebody asked me why I was so short this morning. And I said, one thing I learned in traveling is that nobody ever complains when I'm short. (laughs) So it works for me anyway. So um, we're going to talk about the heavens declare the glory of God. And if we could have the first slide. There, I got it. Okay, very good. So our text for this morning is... (laughs) <laughs> there we go. Wait, which, what's the right angle? <laughs> the, um, they don't call him the prince of the power of the air for nothing, all right? He gets into the AV systems. All right, Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day, other speech, night unto night, showeth knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So the heavens refers to what appears in the sky above us, uh, the firmament or sky, canopy that seems to cover the earth from our vantage point as we look up. It's a synonym for the heavens. The glory of God in this context points to the splendor of the creator. As we look up, we see the amazing handiwork of God. That's our topic for this session, the amazing handiwork of God in what we call outer space. So our first question then is how, how do the heavens declare the glory of God? And the first way is through transcendence and all. As we contemplate the grandeur of the universe, it can evoke feelings of humility and awe. We read about God's creative activities on the fourth day. Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, divide light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So the greater light is the sun, the lesser light is the moon, and we'll talk about them more later, but let's focus on this short phase in the verse 16 He made the stars also. In that, we'll see the transcendence and alls. So how many stars are there in the visible universe? As of September 2021, before we started receiving data from the James Webb Space Telescope, it was estimated there are around 100 to 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And each galaxy can contain anywhere from millions to trillions of stars. That means the total number of stars in the visible universe is in the range of one to two sextillion. So how many is that? Okay. That's one followed by 21 zeros. You write that down on your little sheet there. Okay. One followed by 21 zeros. You don't have to write out all the zeros okay, if you don't want to. What's the 
biggest star in the universe that's been discovered so far. And the name is U.Y. Scooty. Isn't that a nice name? It's a red supergiant star. Its size is estimated to be around 1,700 times the diameter of the sun, which means it's roughly 1.7 billion or 1.1 billion miles in diameter. To put this in perspective, if U.Y. Scooty were placed in the center of our solar system, its surface would extend beyond the orbit of Jupiter. In terms of volume, UY Scooty is so enormous you could fit several billion suns inside of it. Now, you're supposed to be able to see that pixel. You see that arrow from the sun? It's pointing to one pixel. So I don't know if you can see that up here. I can't. I can see it just a little bit. So it's really, really small compared to the size of UY Scooty. Now, you'd be forgiven to thinking that UY Scooty was the most massive object in outer space. But it's not. The most massive single objects are the supermassive black holes that reside at the center of galaxies. The most massive black hole we know of is TON618. It's estimated to have a mass of around 66 billion times that of the sun. 66 billion times that of the sun. So how far away is the closest star? How long would it take us to get there using current technology? So the closest star is Proxima Centauri. It's located 4.22 light years away from the Earth. With current technology and the fastest spacecraft, fastest spacecraft so far has been the Parker Solar Probe. It can travel at speeds of 430,000 miles per hour. 430,000 miles per hour. At that speed, it would take the Parker Solar Probe over 6,700 years to reach Proxima Centauri, the closest star. Now, all these sizes and distances are... Oops. Let me go back. Here we go. ...are inconceivable to us. So let's place ourselves in the picture. This is the famous picture called the Pale blue dot. So this was taken by Voyager 1 space probe in 1990. It was taken around 3.7 million, or excuse me, 3.7 billion miles away from us. Actually, we would call it 0.015% closer to Proxima Centauri than we are, 0.015%. And look back and that little pale blue dot is the Earth, an array of sunlight. Now, someone who doesn't know the Creator God, they would think of the pale blue dot as a powerful reminder of our planet's isolation and fragility in the cosmic expanse. But those of us who know the Creator God understand that even though the Earth is a very small stage on which to manifest His love and joy and glory, he made it first on day one of creation. He made the earth before he made the stars. It is very important. So what's the purpose of this small stage <laughs> that we call the earth? The answer is that God loves to display his own glory. 
So, so, so much so that he must share it. He shares it with himself. He shares it with the angels. He shares it with other rational creatures. And that's where we come into the story. He made the stars also. The second way in which we... There we go. Oops. I keep hitting it twice. I shouldn't do that. Second way in which we... The heavens declare the glory of God is through their universal testimony. The heavens are accessible to all people, regardless of language or culture, so they can serve as a universal testimony to the existence and glory of God. So let's narrow our focus down now down to our sun. We've done the stars, now we'll do the sun. So the sun is a ball of incandescent plasma. You've got a place to put that on your sheet there, a ball of incandescent plasma at the center of our solar system. It accounts for more than 99.86% of the mass of our solar system. That's 99.86%. So if you can do subtraction, you see that 0.14% of the total mass of our solar system is everything else, all the planets and asteroids and comets, everything else. So the sun is a big part of our solar system, 99.86%. Now, the ancient civilizations used to worship, like the Romans, every every ancient civilization had a sun god. This is the Egyptian sun god, Ra. And they worshiped the sun because they saw it as something that brings life. And perhaps that worship was to be expected. For without the sun, life on earth would not be possible. God knew this would happen, and he warned his people in the Bible against worshiping the sun. Deuteronomy 4.19. And then you get to Deuteronomy 17, the worship of the sun was made a capital offense. In Genesis 1.3, God proclaimed his sovereignty over the sun because he created the light on the first day, but he waited till day four to create the light bearers, the sun and the moon. Now, sometimes you'll, this, this, this evening at 5.30, we'll talk more about this. But sometimes I ask the children, how can we have light without the sun? And they usually say something like, well, God is light. And I say, no, does that mean God created himself? No, God's an uncreated being. And then I get these furrowed brows from the children. So I explain to them what God created on day one is the entire electromagnetic spectrum. The entire electromagnetic spectrum. That includes light we can see, a little bit of sliver in the middle, the visible light. It includes a lot of light we can't see. Gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, infrared, microwaves, radio waves. How do I know that? Well, we'll show you a demonstration of that this evening. Uh, But but we know that's true because we know about atoms. Atoms have electrons. Anytime you have a moving electrical charge, you have electromagnetism. So we know that the Bible gets the order right. You have to have electromagnetism first before you have the atoms that make up the universe as we know it. So the Bible always gets the order right. Now, older students, they'll ask, they'll say, well, how can we have night and day without the sun? And I explained to him that the sun's not needed. All it's needed is a directional light source at a rotating earth. So if we have light coming from one direction, 
and a spinning earth, we have evening and morning. Before the sun was created, where did that light come from? Well, I don't know, but it could be something like this. It could be what we read about in Revelation 21, 23. It says that one day the sun will not be needed because the glory of God will light the heavenly city. Maybe it was a light like that. You know, if we feel superior to these ancient civilizations who worship the sun, it's good for us to remember that even in our own day, evolutionists proclaimed that the sun's energy striking the earth eventually gave rise to life. So evolutionists are, in a sense, no better than the pagans because they believe that the sun, in a sense, should be given credit for the wonders of creation. Skeptics have long ridiculed the science of biblical creation over this point. How could there be light bathing the earth before the sun was created? Obviously, the Bible must be in error. But the psalmist gives us a clue here in Psalm 74 and verse 16. He says, the day is thine, the night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. There's two different Hebrew words there. There is the light and then there's a light bearer that God created. Now, according to secular scientists, where did the sun come from? So I have a little story here. I've just added three, a few words at the beginning, four words, once upon a time. Okay, everything else, everything else comes from live science on the web. So once upon a time, in a wide expanse of space, gravity drew dust and gas together to create the sun. Most of the material was hydrogen and helium, and some of it was made up of leftover remnants from the violent stars, deaths of stars. Waves of energy traveling through space pressed clouds of such particles closer together, and gravity caused them to collapse in on themselves. As the material drew together, gravity caused the spin. The spin caused the cloud to flatten into a disk like a pancake. In the center, the material clumped together to form a protostar that would eventually become the sun. The young protostar was a ball of hydrogen and helium not yet powered by fusion. Over the course of about 50 million years, the temperature and pressure of the material inside increased, jump-starting the fusion of hydrogen that drives the sun today. Well, the first problem with this secular fairy tale is the fact that star formation and stellar evolution have never been observed by anybody, no matter what you believe about creation, because it's supposed to occur over millions of years, 50 million years, okay? We haven't been around to observe it. They show you pictures like this. They say this is where stars are born, but nobody has ever seen it take place. The second problem is that dust and gas clouds don't collapse in on their own. As they shrink, they get hotter and hotter, and the pressure increases. And uh, so there's nothing... Because it gets hotter, it forces the particles apart. So they, the secular scientists have to have a dying star nearby that collapses, forms a shock wave, and collapses the star and makes it into a sun just at the right time. The third problem is the circular argument. For the first stars to form, there would have had to have been other stars that are dying to form a shock wave. So where did those stars go back, get, come from? On all the stars back to the first stars in the universe, where did they come from? There's no dying stars to form them. The fourth problem 
It's what we call the law, violating the law of conservation of angular momentum. That's a big term. It's just the turning energy, and you're all familiar with this. You've watched skaters, and so the skaters, you know, they, they spin, around, and then they put their hands in, and they spin faster, right? I used to demonstrate this with an office chair on the p- platform, and I flew off of it one time. <laughs> so I'm not, not going to do it that way. <clears throat> so conservation of angular momentum... So as the dust cloud and the gas come together, it goes faster and faster, and all the stuff flies off, okay? And um, so it doesn't, doesn't work, okay? The, um, when I was a kid, we used to have these uh, merry-go-rounds. I don't know if you remember those. When I was a kid, and it was fun to spin them real fast, see if we could throw our brothers off the, off the merry-go-round, see if we could do serious bodily harm to them. But, <laughs> I had chipped teeth because I had, had a problem with that. Anyway, the fifth problem is the sun's not spinning fast enough. Today, the sun only has about 1% of the supposed angular momentum left over. Where did the 99% go? Nobody knows. The last problem is what I'm going to talk about. is called the faint sun paradox. Uh, the sun power comes from fusion of two hydrogen atoms into a helium atom. If the sun was billions of years old, like the secular scientists say, the helium would be building up and the sun would get hotter. Okay? This, of course, means that the sun is billions of years old. The sun would have been colder then, and the early Earth would have been below freezing. But we don't find any evidence of that. As we dig down in the Earth, in the geological record, it looks like the Earth was warmer in the past, not colder uh, according to this series. So that's a real problem. That's why they call it the faint young sun paradox. Well, let's get to something more um, biblical here. So Psalm 19, David talks about the sun here. And we know that this is poetic language. Okay. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and his circuit under the ends of it. There's nothing hid from the heat thereof. So a poetic love language, it's descriptive imagery, but it, it actually shows us some of the things that David understood about the sun. They're really amazing. The first thing is we see in verse 4c, he says that God has set the tabernacle for the sun. It, it is that David appears to understand that the sun is not moving. He literally set it in place. In Psalm 19.5, David describes the sun as a bridegroom, as a strong man running a race. Now think about all the sources of energy that David was familiar with, like campfires. Campfires would have burned out and got smaller. But the sun, every day it came up, it was the same. It still was vigorous and young. And that's why he talks about it as a strong man who runs a race. Actually, uh, because the hydrogen has been turned into helium, uh, we're actually losing mass in the sun. Actually, the sun is getting bigger every year. It's getting bigger about as fast as your fingernails grow. Okay? So about an inch, about an inch per year. And uh, so we can't measure that. We can calculate it, but we can't measure that. So the sun, to us, looks like it never changes in size. And David noticed that truly the sun never loses its 
youth and vigor. And then Psalm 19.6, he speaks of the sun going forth, speaks of the apparent motion of the sun across the sky as the earth turns, as well as the sun's heat and light felt and seen all around the world. As the sun lights the earth, so too, the revelation of God's character, power, beauty, design is universal. Every human knows something about the creator God because every human has seen the sun. Okay? There is no excuse. Every human knows something about God because they've seen the sun. Well, the third way that the heavens declare the glory of God is through order and design. Order and design. The order and precision seen in the movements of the celestial bodies and the laws that govern the universe show a purposeful design pointing to an intelligent creator. So we're going to use the moon as an example of this order and design. So where did the moon come from? Well, Genesis, of course, tells us directly, but many um, years, many, uh, much money has been spent by those who don't believe the Bible trying to tell us about the origin of the moon. Now, when I was in high school... Uh, back in the Dark Ages, okay, uh, actually in the 1960s, uh, in eighth grade science class, uh, I had an Earth science book, and the Earth science book showed me how the moon was made. It was called the fission theory. It showed the, the spinning ball of molten lava, and the, the moon came out of it. And where it came out, that was the Pacific Ocean. Okay, that's how the Pacific Ocean was formed, according to them. Well, there's a problem with that. First of all, uh, when that, that blob of, of, of lava comes out like that, uh, it actually goes through what we call the Roche limit, R-O-C-H-E, which is the breakup limit. There's tidal forces from the Earth on the moon, on the front of the moon, the back of the moon, and if, the, if it came out like that, it would actually rip the moon apart. You'd get a ring. You wouldn't get a moon, okay, as it went through the Roche limit. Then there was a problem. We actually went to the moon in the 60s, and we got some rocks from there. And guess what? Moon rocks are not like earth rocks. Earth rocks have lots of iron in them, for example, and moon rocks don't. So they realized it couldn't have come out of the earth. So they kind of gave up on that. Okay? So we get to the 70s, and we get the capture theory. So the moon is sort of wandering around out there, you know, and uh, somehow... It inserts itself into an almost perfectly circular orbit around the Earth. Okay. Now, I grew up in a time uh, before there were computer games, video games, and things like that. Okay, we we had to entertain ourselves. Okay, <laughs> so I grew up in New Jersey. Somebody, somebody asked about my name. So my father was an immigrant. He came through Ellis Island, and Matsko means teddy bear in Hungarian. Okay. So I'm just a big teddy bear. So you can ask me questions. Don't be afraid of me. All right. So anyway, I used to go to the Franklin Institute over in Philadelphia on the subway. And they had a proto-video game. And as a young teenager, I'm attracted to that, of course. And the object was to take a rocket ship and see if you could get it to insert itself in a circular orbit around the, the moon. Well, I never could. I tried as hard as I could, but... Yeah, I would, my rocket ship would come in and go, you know, into outer space. I never could get it to go into orbit around the around the Earth. 
So even at that age, I understood that this idea about the moon inserting itself into an almost perfectly circular orbit around the Earth ain't going to work, all right? So I do that. So then they came up with the condensation theory. That is kind of like the way the sun was supposed, supposedly made. You have, uh, you have all this gas and rock and so forth, and it's spinning around, and it pulls itself into the Earth and the moon. But nobody could figure out why you got two things. Why wouldn't you just get one? Why would not, not get a bigger Earth? Why, why Earth and the moon? So they kind of gave up on that. Okay? And then finally, the collision theory. And this is what they teach in public schools today. Uh, the sad thing is, is they teach it even though they know it doesn't work. Now, I don't mind them saying this is our best idea or, you know, this is our best guess or whatever, but they teach it as fact. And yet, people who study these things know that it's not true. It doesn't even work in computers, okay? And yet, they teach it as this. So, what they have is, I have a picture up there, so it must be true. See my picture? Okay, so that's a, so the, uh, the small planet there is called Thea, and it's about the same size as Mars, and it runs into the Earth, and all this debris flies up and uh, forms the moon. And that's what, if you go to the NASA website or you go to any public school textbook on this subject, that's what they'll say, that it's how the moon formed. But it does not work. I call it the big whack. Okay? But to get the angular momentum right, you can't have just one big whack. You can't have hit from one side. You have to have at least another whack from the other side to get the angular momentum to work out in a computer program or whatever. It just doesn't work. Then you have a problem with the fact that you have the Roche limit again. Okay? And you have a problem with the fact that, you know, the moon is moving away from the Earth. Did you know that? It's, it's uh, moving at w- one and a half uh, inches per year. The moon's getting away from the Earth by one and a half inches further away every year. Well, that's not a big deal. If you're like me, you believe that the, that the entire uh, universe is only six or 7,000 years old. Well, what are we talking about? At most, maybe 60 miles. Well, 60 miles out of... 250,000, uh, or 250 million miles, whatever, is not, not a, or 250,000 miles is not a big deal, okay? Uh, but if you believe that the Earth-Moon system is billions of years old, now you got a problem, because that puts the Earth and the Moon right next to each other a, mil- a billion years ago, not even four billion years ago, but just a billion years ago, they're right next to each other, okay? Within the Roche limit. Again, you'd have a ring and not a moon. Plus, You'd have a problem with the tides. You think about it, if the moon was closer to the earth, the tides would overflow the land twice a day. It would be hard to live on a planet like that, okay, with the tides sweeping over the earth twice a day. So, none of the, so even though the moon is the closest heavenly body to us, um, we still don't have a good secular theory of where it came from. It's a hundred million times closer than even the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. So they don't have a convincing scientific theory. However, Bible-believing Christians have a better idea. Um, God created the moon on the fourth day of creation and placed it in a nearly circular orbit to accomplish his particular purposes, one of which is to bring him praise and glory. Psalm 148.3, Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise ye him, all ye stars of life. So how does the moon praise God? Uh, why did God create the moon? What's the moon up there for? Would we miss the moon if it was gone? The Bible gives us a lot of important information as to the Creator's purposes for the moon. 
And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. So first purpose, of course, it is a nightlight. Okay? Nightlight. You can put that on your blank there. And it allows movement at night. Or Jeremiah 31, 35, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Deuteronomy thirty three fourteen, And for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun and for the precious things brought forth by the moon, that implies that the moon is critical for agriculture and biorhythms. You can write that on your sheet there to, for agriculture and biorhythms. They say, how does that work? And the answer is, I don't know. Now, my name, George, means farmer. But I'm as far from a farmer as you can get, okay? Like I said, I grew up in New Jersey, right near the, the high-speed line. And I couldn't sleep if the, I didn't hear the trains going by all night long, okay? We used to, I went to some kid's home for overnight in the country, and I couldn't sleep. It was too quiet, okay? okay I needed that noise. So I'm not a farmer at all. In fact, when I was 12 years old, uh, they, our school, our public school, took on a field trip to see a cow. I'd never seen a cow close up. Okay. I mean, you see them from the road, but I never saw one close up. I, didn't, I thought milk came in those bottles they used to deliver, so I didn't know. Okay, so I'm not a farmer at all. But as I've traveled around the world and talked to farmers, I say, does the moon have any effect on your crops? Also, yeah, it does. And they tell me about it, okay? And so that's one of those deals where what do you do when the Bible doesn't seem to make sense to you scientifically? And the answer is something that I learned from a quote from Martin Luther. This is a rough translation of the German. He said, give God the honor of being smarter than you are. Okay? So if you come up with something and it doesn't make sense scientifically, give God the honor of being smarter than you are. That Science hasn't caught up to where the Bible is today. Okay? Another thing that people often want to know is does the moon affect human behavior? seems like the Bible talks about that. Psalm 121.6 says it seems to indicate that the sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. Now you can see my hairstyle here. So I know all about the sun smiting me by day. Okay, I got that. Got to wear a hat. I know that. Okay. Uh, but how does the moon smite somebody? And then in Matthew 4.24, it talks about the moon affecting human behavior it says that Christ healed those who were lunatic. That's in the King James, the lunatic. Uh, the word actually means moonstruck in the, in the Greek. Okay? Now, sometimes modern translations, the one you have in front of you, it may say epileptic or having seizures or something like that. But there's nothing in the word, nothing in the Greek word that means that. Okay? The, it's just translators trying to figure out what moonstruck must mean in that context. Okay, but I take it literally, okay, moonstruck. Again, I talk with policemen, I talk with nurses, mental health workers, and they all tell me that the full moon influences people they deal with. And I, I say, well, you know, how does it affect them? Well, we have to put more staff on, you know, that type of thing. And they all tell me it has an effect on their, on their patients. 
Now, I don't, again, I don't know how it works. I just give God the honor of being smarter than I am. You know, every fundamental Bible-believing church has at least one crazy person in it. I don't know if you knew that. Okay. I was in a church in San Francisco, and a guy in the back, he said, that's me, he said. <laughs> and everybody turned around and said, that's him. <laughs> and, uh, but it's good. It's good that people with mental health problems feel loved in our churches. That's not a bad thing. Uh, but I went to, to uh, visit. We, were, we used to go to Australia. We did that for 23 summers, took students over there. And we went to a church, and there was a, a, ch- a church, and there was a guy in the church, and he was crazy. His name was John, loves the Lord, but he has mental health problems. And he would have to do time in the hospital and the, the, you know, the sand asylum for time, whatever they call them these days. And so I visited him, and I said, John, how did you sleep last night? He said, oh, it was terrible. He said, there's a full moon out, and all the other people, they're, they're howling like wolves, and they're rattling the, the you know, bouncing off the walls. And so I couldn't sleep. He said, there's a lot of crazy people here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, that's true. And uh, so even he understood that the moon affects people's behavior. We just don't know how it works, okay? Don't worry about that. Well, then we have the fact that the moon is created to function as a clock. This is on your sheet, a calendar, and a season stabilizer. Here's my verse for that. Okay. A clock, a calendar, and a season stabilizer. Psalm 104, verse 19 says, He appointed the moon for seasons. Okay. Well, what gives us the seasons? The seasons were caused by the uh, tilt of the earth. Okay. So uh, during the summertime, the northern hemisphere is toward, tilted toward the sun. Okay. And the southern hemisphere, where we're going uh, in a week, is tilted away. And then go the other way, and then during wintertime, it's tilted away, and so forth. So how does the moon affect the tilt? Well, the moon actually stabilizes the tilt of the Earth. Okay? Now, Mars has a, it doesn't have a big moon like we have. It's got a couple small moons, and its tilt goes from zero to 60 degrees. Okay? You can't live on a planet like that. Elon Musk hasn't figured that out yet, but you can't live on, the, on Mars. Okay? The tilt's not stable. Okay? So he gave us the moon for seasons. He also made the moon to glorify himself. Psalm 8 and verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, or praise ye him, sun and moon, praise ye him, all the stars of light. So how does the moon glorify and praise God? It does it by doing what it was designed to to do. Okay? I heard you praising God in the music service, and uh, it's wonderful to hear the music here and praising God with our lips and so forth, but did you know the man in the moon doesn't have lips? Okay? It can't, the man, moon can't sing. Okay? So how does the moon praise God? Well, the moon praises God by doing what it was designed to do. By the way, we do that as well. Okay? I have this science thing, and Dr. Osborne has got his science thing, and we try to use our science thing to praise God. My wife's got this organizational thing. She tries to use her organizational thing to praise God. So each of you have a way in which you praise God. If you would just do whatever it is you can do, just think how much 
better off the church would be and the community would be because we would all do what we were created to do. Well, what does the moon do? Well, the moon produces tides. Those tides stir up the currents. Currents bring the dead organic matter up from the bottom of the ocean where green plants can eat it and through photosynthesis produces oxygen. Okay, so most of the oxygen you're breathing right now comes from the moon. Okay, and uh, so if the moon didn't do its job, we're all dead. Okay, we're all going to die of asphyxiation. So we consider that the moon is glorifying him by doing its job. The moon also glorifies God by its beauty, a beauty that reflects the beauty of its creator. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, recognized the moon's beauty, used to describe the beauty of his beloved, that his first wife. He said, Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Now, the terrible as army with banners thing doesn't work well on Valentine's cards, okay? <laughs> but what he was thinking about is the sun, the, the stars marching across the sky. He's talking about the stars here. And that was beautiful to him, uh, thinking about the, the, the soldiers in procession walking across the sky. The moon has a glory all of its own that ultimately reflects the creator glory. 1 Corinthians 15:51 says, There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So we've seen three ways now that the heavens declare the glory of God. The first was through transcendence and all. We talked about the stars. Second was through universal testimony of the sun and through order and design using the moon as an example. Sun, the moon, the stars, these celestial marvels reflect a portion of the creator's majestic artistry. But in the midst of this breathtaking display, we're called to consider a light that outshines them all. And we read about it in this hymn. Fair is the sunshine, fair still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Those words resonate with an undeniable reality that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, radiates a brilliance that surpasses any natural wonder. While the heavens declare the glory of God, they also lead us to a Savior whose love and sacrifice transcend the expanse of the cosmos. This light pierces through the darkness of our lives, revealing a path to redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life. Friends, just as the heaven beckons us to gaze upward and contemplate the Creator, the message of salvation calls us to look inward and consider our own hearts. We are all in need of the grace and mercy that Jesus offers. His light invites us to turn from our sins and to acknowledge our need for a Savior, to embrace a gift of eternal life that he offers freely to each one of us. As the hymn beautifully proclaims, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines pure, the heavens themselves pale in comparison to the radiance of his love. So we stand in all of the celestial splendor above, let us also humbly bow our hearts to the one who loved us enough to descend from the heavens and shine his light into our lives. If you never experienced the transformative power of Jesus' love, maybe you're thinking, what's he talking about? I invite you to do so today. Open your heart to him. Let your, his light illuminate your path. 
If you've wandered away from his embrace, know that his arms are open wide, ready to welcome you into his loving presence. The heavens continue to declare the glory of God and will continue until God destroys them and makes them to a far better new heavens and new earth. Those of us who have put our full faith and trust in Christ will live with him in that perfect place and our lives will continue to declare the magnificence of his saving grace. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've seen of your uh, splendor and your glory in the heavens. And Lord, there's so much that we can only cover a small portion of it. But I pray, Father, that you'll be glorified. Lord, as we contemplate these things, as we go outside and we look at the sun and moon and stars, may we think of you and realize that Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the, the, the stars and the heavens that God created. And Lord, help us to live in light of your creation and realize our place in it and the importance of your love toward us. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. Thank you. You The Bible teaches that there is a limit to what you can learn about God from creation. You can look at the wonders of what God has created and the marvel of how he put all that together and you can learn about God's eternal power and, and Godhead. But what the stars can't tell you about is the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to know him. And so in addition to God's revelation in creation, we then need the Bible to tell us that there's a great Savior that allows us to not only know God as the awe-inspiring creator, but to call him Father and Savior forever. So thank you, Dad, for pointing us to Jesus there at the end.